Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it's The Stacks Book Club Day, and it is the last week of National Poetry Month, and I am thrilled to welcome back Nate Marshall, author of the poetry collections Wild Hundreds and Finna. Today, we discuss Doppelgangbanger by Chicago poet Courtney Lamar Charleston. Doppelgangbanger is an exploration of imposed versus self-defined American Black masculinity and its intersections with family and community, about how rigid form actually is in poetry. And I ask me the ever-important question, what makes a poem good? Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link to the show notes. And stay tuned till the end of this episode to find out what our May book club pick will be. Listen, if you love the show and want more of it, join The Stacks Pack, our exclusive community for all you book lovers out there. We have an awesome Discord community, monthly virtual book club conversations, and bonus episodes. Plus, you get discounts on merch and a lot more. Not to mention, The Stacks is an entirely independent podcast, which means everything you hear is produced by me and my incredible team, and we cannot do it without your support. So if you want to get involved in making sure this podcast happens every single week, plus earn those awesome perks, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks. And of course, it's time for shout outs to some of our newest members of The Stacks Pack, Jessica Wright, Jean, Cindy Cherry, Amanda Hartman, Joelle Chapel Weigand, Sally R., Glenda Nelms, and Sarah Rousey. Thank you all so much, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my chat with Nate Marshall about Doppelgangbanger by Courtney Lamar Charleston for the Stacks Book Club. All right, everybody, it is Book Club Day. We are talking about Doppelgangbanger by Courtney Lamar Charleston. Uh, We're joined again by everyone's new favorite poet, in case you didn't know that you loved him after this first week of the month's episode. I now know you all are obsessed with him like I am. It is poet, playwright, professor. I like to do the alliteration there. Uh, It's Nate Marshall. Welcome back. What's up? It's good to be back. I'm so happy to have you back. I'm so excited to talk about this poetry collection because I weirdly had a lot of thoughts like, I feel yeah. like I'm like, have things to talk about, which with poetry, normally I'm like, I'm not going to have anything to talk about, but I took a lot of notes, have a lot of questions, uh, but we'll start 
with you where we always start, which is sort of like generally, what did you think of the book? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I blurb this book when it came out. And I, I noticed. And, yeah. And I should, I should also like say like Courtney is someone who I've like liked a lot for years. We actually met at summer camp. Okay. Like before, at least before he was a writer. I think I was writing at that point. And so, yeah, so he's like someone who I've had a chance to sort of follow and like see grow over the years. And yeah, I really love this book. It was, it's kind of like a joy to read. And I think like in, in a lot of ways, one of the things that I like about it is it does the thing that certainly Courtney as a person does, but I think a lot of folks and especially a lot of like, I think like folks who I find a kind of closeness to do, which is find a way to balance like serious or complex topics and like also still like get a joke off. Mm-hmm. Right. So like constantly in the, in the space of the poems, it's, you know, we're talking about something serious. We're like thinking about some, some real shit, but then there's like a little pun or there's, there's even like a, I mean, even the title, right. The title yeah. like is, is funny. Right? It's, it's one of the things that sort of makes you lean in about the thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why we, I picked the book. I was like, we yeah. got to read this. The title's too good to pass <laughs> up. Okay. I agree with you. I liked the humor. I'll be honest. I could not get into this collection until like the second section. Okay. But I realized what my problem was and I fixed it and then I really liked it. So I started reading the poetry collection like one reads most things silently to myself in bed in a very low stakes way. And then I kept like falling asleep. Like, you know, at nighttime I was tired. Like I kept sort of like dozing off or like catching my mind wandering. And then the next day I was like, I'm going to read this book in the bath. And so I got in the bath and I got to section two and I started reading them out loud. And then I was like, holy shit, I get it now. Like Mm. the use of consonants, the wordplay that just like sort of doesn't like reading out loud for me often really brings things to life, which I should know about myself, but like for whatever reason, I didn't think to do that with this collection. But as soon as I did, like the rhythm became instantly clear. The poems are like fast. Like I wanted to read them really fast. And like, I'm assuming he comes from that tradition of like spoken word that we talked about before. But like Mm -hmm. all of that, all of a sudden became really clear. The jokes became more clear. Uh, The playfulness became more clear. And then I was like really hooked and I was noticing things that I hadn't noticed. Like, for example, the still life of like the different rap album covers. Mm -hmm. I... I understood it. The first one's like Kanye, it's dropout or whatever. And I was like, oh, he's talking about the dropout bear. Like, oh, I know. And then the next three, I totally missed. And then it wasn't until I was reading it out loud that I was like, oh, oh, he's talking about Common or like, oh, I I know this album. And like, so for me, once I started reading it out loud and got a little bit like started taking it less seriously, I liked it so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that was sort of my big, like, that was like my yeah. overall experience with it. It was like the reading it loud. Cause there's so many consonants in this, yeah. in these poems. Well, I think it's like rap it, music. Yeah. Courtney has a real great like ear mm-hmm. that, that comes through in, in these poems. But I also, th- I'm thinking about the way that, um, it, it, it's like what we were talking about before we started rolling about how I think people think of poetry as a very serious art form. And, and some of mm-hmm. that is 
like is something that poets cultivate intentionally or has been cultivated intentionally around poetry. Right. right. So like there's all this stuff around, you know, poetry being like the sort of uh, the intellectual art form of the intellectual literature. Right. It, it is, right. you know, like a, a society that, that doesn't have poetry is not a society that is mature or, you know, all this kind of right. w- weirdness or whatever, which like, meh, I'm like not deeply invested right. in <laughs> as a thing, but like, the thing that I think that that misses is, is that the stuff is fun. And there's a way that like with novels, we're allowed to like have fun to be like, wow, this novel is really funny. It is deeply entertaining. Even if we don't think of that stuff as quote unquote high literature, like literary fiction, even there's a lot of literary fiction that's like legit funny as hell or whatever. I think about someone like Matt Johnson or whomever, right? Right, like the sellout. Right, the sell. Paul Beatty is. I mean, right. This this sort of tradition of satire, right? Um, from what's what's the brother name? Uh, uh, George Skyler. Black, Black no more. Yeah, Skyler. All yeah, the George you know Skyler. up to to Beatty yeah. and and, uh, and Johnson, all these folks. But like that exists in poetry too, right? And like, but I think that this is the thing, right? And this is the thing that that I think I really like about this book and why its engagement with hip hop and with music broadly is interesting to me is I think that a lot of the fun energy of poetry in the kind of, in the 20th century, maybe departed poetry and went to music. Especially Mm. when we like started, when these like very, very text heavy musics became sort of dominant, like hip hop, like certain kinds of pop music and certain kinds of R&B that just have a lot of words in them, right? Yeah. And so a lot of like the people who in a different period would have been like the sort of fun poets Right, the sort of fun and popular poets, like they write pop songs, which is cool, which which, which I'm not mad at, but you know, right, yeah. But this felt to me like when I once I started reading it out loud, I was like, oh my gosh, this is rap music, like the use of like consonants, the use of like a rhyme within a rhyme or like the line would have like rhymes within, not at the end, you know, like you think of like a poem or like a sonnet or whatever, like, but like rhymes throughout that worked or like similar sounds throughout. And then all these like referential moments, like that's one of my favorite things about rap is like when a rapper references something and I'm like, oh, I know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or like, oh, you know, Drake will like talk about a basketball player or whatever. And I'm like, oh, yes, Chef Curry with the pot. I'm familiar. I'm a big Warriors fan. Like, and so this, this had that of like, I'm not explaining any of these references to you. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, it's totally over your head and we're not going back and I'm never bringing it up again. And for me, that is like so like Lil Wayne does that so much, right? Absolutely. Like where he'll reference like some little thing and then he'll go and dig into the sounds and he'll use the same word three different ways yeah. with different spellings. And like Courtney does that a bunch in this yeah. book. Like he'll use the same, like, I mean, of course the, the guzzle, the gazal. how do you say that word? Huzzle, I don't know. Guzzle, okay. guzzle. Guzzle, whatever. That the word. Jumpman poem. Yeah. Like, of course that one just felt like so mm-hmm. like, put a beat under that that shit slaps all day every day like Absolutely. I, i'm interested Absolutely. so like i definitely under i definitely felt that like hip-hop influence and i hate to say it because i feel like it's like hip-hop because it's a black poet and i don't and it's not that sure. at all obviously yeah. no, he's like it, this really felt like hip-hop yeah. Yeah. yeah he's writing about hip-hop albums he's writing like i just could feel i could feel 
so much like influence of rap music. And mm -hmm. I felt like as soon as I started saying it out loud, I could hear the music in the poetry, which sometimes I take a poem out loud and I'm still like, I have no fucking clue what this person's talking about. But these like came alive to me in a way that I was really surprised about. Right. I mean, to that thing of like uh, thinking about it almost as like an album or, or thinking about it in the conversation with rap music. One of the things that I think this also shares with, with rap is like, for me, like rap is many things, but but one of the things it is is kind of like it's the form of, in particular, black coming of age, and especially sort of black masculine mm. coming of age, right? So think like think about so many of the sort of like great or canonical rap albums, right? Biggie's Ready to Die, Pox, Me Against the World, Nas's Illmatic, College Dropout, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Like a lot of these joints are really about this sort of coming of age, right? And, and even even albums mm. that aren't that aren't exactly that, like something, you know, like uh, what I like to call like um, Jay Z's like late Tim Duncan era, four forty four. That that's <laughs> that's a, it's a kind of album thinking about his own maturation, right? And that's sure. that's like exactly what this book is kind of doing, right? It's wrestling with it like is. what that means, what it means to just like grow up in a particular yeah. time, in a particular place. And you were totally like in my head as I was reading this, obviously, because we just talked like that day. And I kept thinking about first poets mm -hmm. and how like if this, if you're a young black dude and Courtney Lamar Charleston is your first poet, you fucking love poetry for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Like you're chasing this book because he is speaking so specifically to young black men. And because as we sort of talked about last time a little bit, like there is this shift in the book towards like this suburban yeah. young black man. Like I think in the earlier part, that's not as explicit or, or maybe he moved at some point in his life. I don't exactly know, but that's sort mm -hmm. of the sense that I got, but like there is a range to black experience in this book where it feels like whether you are suburban, urban, or maybe even rural, like there are poems in here that speak to you. And I just kept thinking like, wow, if this was my first poetry collection, like maybe I wouldn't think of white men in nature so much sure. when someone says poem. Like it just, this is like a, yeah. it just, I don't know. It was like very, it was an exciting read for me. Yeah. He seems also like, I don't know if maybe that's just because the poems are about coming of age. He seemed very young to me also. Like like a younger person. Sure. I don't know how old he is, but I was like, oh, he's like a 25-year-old poet. Like he just had like a very young energy. But sure. again, that could just be because like he was talking about earlier iterations of himself. Sure. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want you to give me a definitive answer. What makes a poem good? Is there such thing as like an objectively good poem? Is there such thing as a as a agreed upon thing that makes a poem good or is that really just like up to the reader and the critics that's a good question um there are certain critics who would say yes there is an objective or you know certain sort of readers of poetry would say yes there's an objectively good thing i don't really think there is right like I, there's a book that's actually it's actually about more about fiction but like i think most of it kind of applies to poetry um this book called um, Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salasis. And like mm. in that joint, he's sort of talking about the ways in which craft is all about culture, right? So the things that we think of as good writing are entirely shaped and informed by our cultural context, right? And so what is effective writing in 
you know, mid-century Cold War United States could be quite different than what constitutes good or evocative writing in 18th century Japan or or whatever, right? Right, right, right. And I think that's really true. There, there is this like, uh, I don't know, I, I'm like taking a class right now, which is sort of strange okay. and fun. So in this class, one of the things we've been talking about is this uh, this thing called new criticism, right? Which is this like literary, it, it, it's sort of unimportant. If you like sleep through this part of your English classes, no one's ever going to get at you about it. It's fine. Okay. But um, <laughs> it's this way of, of reading literature that sort of comes into vogue in like the middle part of the 20th century. And the whole idea of it is we just close read the text. We don't oh, yes. think about biographical details. We don't think about the sort of wider context out of which the work emerges. It's just words in a page and that has to sort of stand alone on its own, right? Respectfully, that don't make no damn sense. Cause like, <laughs> cause words are actually cultural artifacts, right? Like, sure. I mean, period, like, like the fact of language or even the fact of like language being written down, like the notation of language versus language being the sort of abstract verbal or physical thing that we do. Right. That's all cultural. It, you know, but, but the thing that people don't think about in terms of like new criticism, I promise I'm going to like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious. Up. You're but doing like, great. You're doing great. The thing that people don't think about is a lot of the guys who were early in starting that were also like a valid kind of white supremacist and segregationist. I was and, just going to ask right. about that. <laughs> and this was, and this was coming up in this moment where two things were sort of happening, like coming out of the 1920s and thirties. What do you have? You have like the new Negro moment, the Harlem Renaissance, mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. have this moment where people, where where there's a lot of this kind of like socialist social movement literature, this literature of the quote unquote masses, right? And so, a lot of 20th century literature, including like you know the the kind of graduate program that I went to, an MFA program, that whole thing comes out of this moment that is all about sort of a rejection of a certain kind of social critique. And instead about like literature as a sort of terrain of like the rugged individual. And like, that's fine, I guess. Like that's one way of doing it, but we should just understand that like that way of understanding literature is, has a political agenda. And so, you know, I'm, and and yeah, and, and that's, and that's just like one agenda that we, we don't necessarily have to subscribe to. But one of the things that I do really love about this book too, to, to sort of come back to it, is it is what you were saying, right? The kind of suburbanness of this, right? Because I think that, you know, since we're not new critics and we can like think about the world as it actually is, right? The reality of like America is that we have this this vision of black people as this sort of fundamentally urban population. And that is really kind of antiquated, right? Like mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And, and is increasingly more so, right? So like where I'm from in Chicago, right, which is, you know, where Courtney is is also kind of coming out of, right? Um, the city of Chicago has lost hundreds of thousands of Black people in the last few decades, right? And mm. But where have all those people gone? Well, some of them have like left the area entirely, but a lot of them have gone to these suburbs, right? right. And so this is a fundamental part of, if you want to understand something of the, a singular Black experience or the Black experience writ large in these larger dynamics of the, the country, the region, whatever, like you have to think, like meaningfully about the suburbs. It can't just be the sort of quote unquote inner city story. Right. Right. Okay. There's two things I want to touch back on and I don't know if I'm going to remember. Remind me that I want to come back to suburbs if I forget. Yeah. About the new 
crit- what is it? New criticism. Yeah, yeah. I feel like first of all, Imani Perry talks about this in South to America. Oh, she's probably gotten there yet. Yeah, I haven't gotten. I think there she yet. does. No. I feel okay. like she does. I can't remember. But when you said it, I was like, that reminds me of Imani Perry. Anyways, I feel like what's so interesting about what you're saying about that is like that, of course, is a type of criticism of art, and I think that it, you know. I, from from what you're saying and like from my small understanding, it also was like in the theater and music and like all sorts of art, but also it feels very much like politically right now, what a lot of like Republican, conservative, right wing, white supremacist organizations and groups are doing with like the current quote unquote culture wars. Sure. You know, like this callback of like, we want to get rid of affirmative action. We don't want to say gay in our schools. Like we want to take all of the context out of everything and therefore bring it back to neutral. But of course, neutral in this country is straight, white, cis, able-bodied, healthy, all of those things. And like what's happening now is of a tradition from like of this time after – you know, or pre and post sort of World War Two and pre and then obviously reconstruction and, and, you know, like that this is a response to a political moment and not just like, oh, let's think about art in a different way. It's like, no, this actually is connected to other things and mm-hmm. like that it's coming back again in the banned books and all that stuff, I think is just like so interesting because I think in 2022, a lot of people are obsessed with the current moment and forget about the historical context of so many things. And like, this is part of a a very American tradition of trying to erase other people's experience on account of purity or art or whatever the thing is. Um, And then about this like suburban-ness is like, I think it's, this is, I'm like being very prop pop culture. So when people listen to this episode in a year, you're going to be like, what the fuck is this reference? But it's making me think of all this conversation about Russell Wilson this oh, week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Like, is he corny? Um, is he not corny? Is he corny? Is he not corny? You know, is is Sierra a gold digger as if she doesn't have her own money, but like, fine, sure, go off, like whatever. But I think that like, there is an, a feeling among, I think some black people and many white people that like being from the suburbs makes you less black or more corny or all of these things. And I think to your point of what you were saying is like, there's a lot of fucking black people in the suburbs for a lot of reasons, including, you know, white migration back into urban centers and, you know, all of those issues. But I think it's interesting that there's so many black writers and creators who are from the suburbs and who were raised in the suburbs or lived in the suburbs for part of their lives or went to school there and that they don't talk about that. And so it allows this like stereotype of the suburbs being like for sellouts, even though there's so many black people there. And like, it's very much a base for black people, just like urban centers are just like rural communities are. And I just wonder, like, why do you think more black people don't embrace that if that is their story? That's a great question. Wow, damn. You know, there, there's this, uh, this really great scholar who I believe is at Northwestern named Mary Patillo. And she has this book called Black Picket Fences. And it's sort of about the black middle class. And I think about that book a lot. Um, and then, you know, like, even like going all the way back, there's E. Franklin Frazier, who's like an old school sociologist, has this book called The Black Bourgeoisie, right? Or even like our kind of people, right? This kind of so this 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 sort of question of class and how class functions within blackness. I think one of the reasons why a lot of I mean also let me just say like 
and not to not this is not me trying to sort of like lay down my own Negro credentials or whatever, but like I'm not. You're not from the suburbs. I'm just not from the suburbs. I I know a lot I am, of cats from the suburbs. I am. I am from a city, but I am from the suburb part of it. I'm from Oakland, but Oakland's a super segregated city. And I'm from what you might consider the suburbs or as they're familiarly known, the hills. So I am a more of a suburban. Yeah, yeah. So So we have both sides. Right, right. (laughs) So I think that the thing about it is, I think think the reason why, why a lot of Black folks sort of struggle to talk about this in a really meaningful way is a few things. It's it's kind of like a, it's a it's a double bind, right? One on one hand, like you understand that there are all these stereotypes about blackness being being kind of urban, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and being connected to city centers, right? And so to embrace uh, something that is sort of not urban is to feel yourself being less black. And this is one of the things that like Courtney is getting at in a lot of these poems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I think is really interesting. But I also think like, you know, also I think that a lot of, if you grew up in a place, right, the thing about growing up in a place is you didn't choose it, right? Mm. And, you know, for a lot of us, like who had parents in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever, who, you know, left city centers or left wherever and went out to these suburbs, you know, those are, are really complicated decisions. Those are decisions that are that are motivated by a number of things. And like in part, right, at least not n- not entirely, but at least in part, those are often decisions that are kind of motivated by by notions that we might think of as anti-black or classist. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. as we grow up and like have a critique of that or have a kind of analysis of that, then I think like people don't necessarily want to you know, they're, they're like, not like throw shade um, at their parents. Right. Right. They don't they don't want to throw shade at their parents, but they also like don't want to oh, don't want to admit to being like a product top, top to it yeah. because yeah. they're like, I didn't sign up for that. It was right. just where I happen to be, which is right. which is like fair. You know, I think about which is um, true and fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think about what's his what's his name? Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, like very first book. Um, mm. The Beautiful Struggle. The Beautiful Struggle. Yeah, which people like rarely talk about, but that is actually my favorite Tanahasi book. I like, I like told him this once in, on Instagram. I was like, I was like, yo. And then he blocked you. This book is I'm not just favorite. kidding. No, he was like, he was, he was like, cool. <laughs> like, he was like, I didn't think. I haven't read it yet. I own it, but I haven't read it. So yeah. I can't, I, I can't yeah, wait. I really love it. And I taught it, I taught it in um uh, this class about the literature of hip hop. But um, there's a point in that book and in, in his kind of story where, they move from wherever they're living in Baltimore to the county, right? Mm. And, he, and he has this whole thing and he's sort of mad and he's like, you know, whatever. And his, and his dad is kind of like, dog, I'm tired. Like, I'm not, right. like, if I can get this little bit of peace of mind about sort of my geography in this way, I'm going to do that. And then, mm-hmm. and then he kind of finds it like hard to begrudge his father this like little piece of peace. Um, right. So yeah, so I guess I'm I'm just like, I just think I just think they're really complicated. I think suburbs are complicated. I think cities are also really complicated. Also, I think we talk poorly about cities, right? Because, I mean, like what you're saying about Oakland, you're from Oakland, but I'm from Oakland, but growing up in different parts of Oakland means different things, right? And yep. that's not always. And legend. Oakland is a city that is notorious for people who know nothing about Oakland, sort of in the way Chicago, I'm sure, right. is like notorious for bad. For for violent things, right. even though also, I mean, 
Chicago has incredible, incredible history that I probably don't know very much about, but like Oakland is also the home of the Black Panthers and like Oakland, like, and like Cal Berkeley is right there. And like all of, you know, all of that is like part of the Bay Area history. And, you know, it's, it is in Oakland has changed so much. And I think people think about Oakland differently now than they did when I was a kid. And obviously before I was born, but like, you know, I was born in the eighties and Oakland was Oakland very much in a way that people were scared of in the nineties and two thousands. And like, I even have internalized, like I'm from Oakland, but like not that part of like, as if it fucking makes a difference. Right. Like, but, and then I also like feel guilty, like claiming Oakland. Cause I'm like, I know I'm from the Hills. Like, I know it's right. not the same, but like there, it is really complicated. Right. And especially in a place like Oakland, that's like diverse allegedly because the Bay area is diverse. You know, it is, but it is segregated. Like a city like New York is super diverse and super segregated. Absolutely. So I think you're right. Like cities become really complicated because they take on certain narratives. Right. Right. And, and often with, with, with suburbs, just simply because we just don't know those places, yeah. they, they kind of sidestep some of that. But like, you know, if, you, if you're from if you're from the Chicagoland area, right, and you're from the city, but you're from, say, uh, this neighborhood called like the Gold Coast or you're from Beverly. I know Gold Coast. Right. Or you're from like certain parts. That means a sort of a different thing, even you know, in the '90s or '80s, certainly. Then, if you're from a suburb, that's a suburb, yes, but is a suburb like Calumet City or Markham or Harvey, right? That are these very like working class, kind of hard scrabble, predominantly mm. black and brown, like these suburbs that, in the same way that city neighborhoods did, experience like really devastating like white flight and intentional divestment, right? Right. Like arguably. If, if you're a black person who grew up in a kind of hyper segregated, poor and working class community within the city limits, you have just as much, if not more in common with someone from Harvey or Markham or wherever than you do with someone who grew, came up downtown. Right. Well, I think that's the other thing is like the assumption about a suburb is that it's like a white sub soccer mom. Right location right, and like fancy, that's just that it, yeah that it's fancy that it's white mm-hmm. like overwhelmingly white that it's wealthy that the schools are better like i think that there's a lot of assumptions about right. suburbs that are just not true in the same way you know like mm-hmm. i said before i have assumptions about a poet right like yeah, when i think of a poem absolutely. or a poet i think of like this thing that i've been told is what it is yeah. and obviously the older i get the more that i learn that a suburb is not that and a poet is not that and Oakland is not that. And like, it's just that we're told these things and then they're reinforced. And I think like there is a sense of maybe, I don't want to speak for other people, but I think there is a sense of like shame of admitting that you're from a suburb, right? Like that that somehow means that you are less black or have had an easier life yeah. or have had more privileges, which may or may not be true. Right. I mean, not the less black part. I don't believe in less. Sure, sure, black, sure, but, sure, sure. You know, but whatever. The, but but the, like, the question of privilege, right? And I think, Right. I think, and that people don't talk about it honestly because of that. And so then these stereotypes right. continue on. If more people were Courtney and talking about their experience in the suburbs in their work, we would have more, you know, representation as right. far as like suburban black experience goes. Right. But, you know, the, the suburbs in many ways, like when I, when they're imagined, right, when we when we think of like the sort of history of that, this this Levittown kind of 
lineage, right, of the like mid 20th century and all, and you know, and the, the track right. homes and all that. The suburbs are meant to be a utopia, which, and when I say utopia, I mean it in the kind of literal sense, they're meant to be a sort of no place, right? right. And so the ways in which I think like cities and also just like literature that is sort of about, that is really place-based, I think that sometimes people struggle to do that well about suburbs because suburbs were cultivated to just not be a place, to be sort of largely interchangeable. So mm-hmm. if I live outside of, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's not really that different than if I live outside of Dallas, than if I live outside of Chicago, than if I live outside of Oakland, and if I live outside of Milwaukee. You know, it's it's simply a right, matter of right. like climate preference and like where you know, where someone's job happens to be. It's not really. Right. But the other thing too, that I'm thinking about in terms of, you know, talking about this sort of like black suburban, like shame that I think Courtney is like doing real work deconstructing. I think that part of it is all these class, these sort of antiquated class assumptions that we have about suburbs and suburbs versus cities, right. That mm-hmm. that one just aren't really true, but two um, aren't really true. And maybe any more. But two, um, I think one of the reasons why a lot of Black writers or just writers of color broadly who come out of those spaces feel resistant to naming themselves a suburban and then will kind of like move to city centers and then sort of claim that or what have you is because often within those spaces, they are sort of class marginal. Mm. And so they don't feel like they're, they're like, there's this thing where it's like, okay, yeah, like I came up in this kind of like fancy suburb right but i didn't actually have access to those things and in some ways in fact it was even worse because like i had you know like i had to sort of suffer the indignity of like witnessing classmates with so much and knowing that i did not have that versus if we were just in a community right where everyone is sort of like this is where we're at everyone is sort of working class in this way Right. And I feel like when when black folks are in suburban communities that are mostly black working class, you know, which often happens outside of city centers, they don't refer to themselves as being suburban. They refer to themselves as being from outside the city, right? which is like a different turn. And I feel like oftentimes when black people say they're from the suburbs, that they're actually like signaling that they were the only black person in their community, right? Like they were from like a white place. Because when I, again, think about the Bay Area, you know, people know Oakland, San Francisco, San Jose, but there's a bunch of other cities and towns and stuff that are, I guess, suburbs. I don't think of them that way. Like, I like I guess Calabasas is a suburb of Los Angeles. I don't, I don't think right. about it that way because, you know, I live here, but um, I don't live in Calabasas, but I like live down here. But like, I'm thinking like a place like Richmond, California, right. people don't call that yeah. a suburb, Richmond. but that's a black as fuck suburb, Richmond's right? Su- like, I was thinking about Richmond. I was, cause I was, um, I mean, I was thinking about the brother, uh, Coogler. Like he, he's from out there. Oh, yeah. like, he has a lot of family. He's from, there. yeah, 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 yeah. He, well, he's from Oakland, I think. I think so. But, but again, right. Like he's, but he's people from, from Oakland, Oakland have family in Richmond. Has family yeah. in Richmond sort of yeah, yeah, go yeah. back and forth. And this is like part of the thing that, that Courtney's even talking about. And I think this is why, like, you were like in that first section, it's not entirely clear to me. Right. Where, where he we're located, is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so a thing that I, that I think is maybe different about the way that class functions amongst black folks and amongst African-Americans, like versus maybe other communities in the country is like, it's rare that like you're that far removed from. Yes from folks who are like 
working class, struggling, however we want to sort of term it, right? Whatever kind of right, euphemism right, right. we want to use that day. So there, there's a kind of like, there's a proximity to, to certain shit. Whether, whether or not we're like comfortable with that and whether or not we like talk to those people, there is a proximity that we have to reckon with. We have to make certain decisions yeah. about. And I don't know that that's true in the same way of like, you know, I know white families where like no one's poor. No right. one's poor. Everyone has a good job. Everyone went to college. Right, they right, just right, did. right. I don't. Right. I don't know a black family where that is true. That's the case, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe like that nuclear family, like that specific. Sure, nuclear. but, but like, like extended. Right. There's some uncle, or there's some cousin, or there's whatever. Yeah. You don't got to yeah. get that far and be like, oh, okay, word. Like this is where we're at. And and I think this is th- again, this is part of the thing about like that hesitation towards like embracing the suburban piece. Mm-hmm. Is if because it's not as much like an identity right. for a black person because like your cousin or your aunt or whatever who you see all the time whose kids you fuck with regularly who are your best right. friends and all of that things are like it doesn't feel as all encompassing as like right. a suburban lifestyle right. might for you're a going, white family you're going back there for church or for family stuff right. or whatever and also right. like I mean this is just and this is not even like talking about feelings like this is just a fact. Like black people being middle class, black middle classness is far more tenuous and far far less stable than than white middle right. classness, and so there is a real sense of like, okay, yeah, but I can't mess it up because we could right. end up right back to wherever it is that my parents fuck like quote unquote got out from, right, 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 and right, I don't, right. I don't think that white people who are similarly situated in terms of education, income, etc. I don't think that they have those same kind of class anxieties, which is funny because we all often like in, in this country, especially the discourse really since like the Trump era has been about, uh, how can I say this, has been so much about like justifying like white misbehavior using, mm. using like class anxiety as a, as a, as a kind of cover. And I'm like, ain't nobody more class anxious than, than, than niggas. Like, right. I don't know. <laughs> Right, right, right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. Um, I would talk about this suburban thing forever, but I feel like we also have to talk about poetry allegedly, but we're going to get right off that poetry shit again and get right back into something more interesting. No offense. No, it's good. It's good. Well, I was thinking about this thing because you you asked this question and I sort of, I like went on into my like professor mode talking about new criticism and shit. I didn't actually oh, answer yeah. your question. Okay. Is there, is the, it, what makes a poem good? Oh yeah. I don't know if there's like a single answer. The answer for me is, is I, I like, I think a poem should sort of function like a tuning fork mm. in that, like you strike it and there's a sound or there's a vibration. And like, even after it sort of stops ostensibly, you still kind of hear it. There's a resonance, right? There, mm. there's, there's something that like, there's a, there's a residue. There's something that's sort of sticky about it. For me, mm-hmm. like that, like those are the poems that, that draw me, right? I don't necessarily mm. have to understand every word or like what is sort of going on in the story of it, but, it, but does it have like some resonance? Does it have, is it just sticky in that way, right? Whether because right. of how it sounds or what it's talking about or, the issues that it introduces or, or whatever. Yeah. First of all, that's the most poet answer of what makes something good. It's like a tuning fork that's sticky. And da-da. I'm like, okay, go with it. Go off poetry. I agree with you. I So you talked about this last time too, like the mathification of poetry, like where there's this one solution or one answer. Mm-hmm. And I think that my whole life I had thought of poetry in that way. And like basically until last year when – Reginald Dwayne Betts came on the show and basically said, like, if there's one piece of a poem that like sticks with you, like that's a good poem kind of thing, which is sort of similar to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And ever since like thinking about poetry in that way, I feel like I am able to read it and get a lot more out of it because I'm like, oh, I don't like this one. Doesn't work for me. Bye. I got to go. And I don't feel this need to like, what are they talking about? What does this word mean? Like, I can just be like, oh, this one works. Yay. And like, 
I just like take my like, you know, when I'm reading this, I take my little notes and I'm like, oh, okay, lessons for Courtney. Love this. Like here for this poem or like Jesus piece. Ooh, very interested in this Jesus piece we're talking about. Love jewelry. Or of course, my personal fave was the poem about the Addy doll, because of course that was sticky for me. I had an Addy doll. I'm with you, Courtney. You know, you know what it's like. So I definitely feel like thinking about poems differently allowed me to like poems more. Like giving myself permission to be like, oh, I don't get it. I don't have to waste my time with this. Like I can come back to this poem in five years and maybe I will get it, you know? And like, and in every poetry collection, I'm thinking like, oh, I have to love every poem for me to have loved the collection. But now I sort of think out of it, like what percentage of the poems did I really like? And like, if that percentage feels like a lot, like that I like the collection. And if Mm -hmm. it feels like not a lot, then I didn't really like it. You know, like even in your books, like I read, I read Wild Hundreds and I read Finna and like in both of them, there were poems that I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. And then there were poems where I was like, I have no idea what this person is talking about. But like, I thought the collection was great. You know, like I left it being like, this is so good. And I do have to shout out, you had a poem in Wild Hundreds. um, I believe that it's called Candy Store. I just want to know like where the other snack related poets are, because like that's the kind of poetry that I like to be (laughs) reading regularly. Like there is a big hole in the snack poet market that I would like to see filled with yeah. many more snack related poems. I mean, I, I feel like because you're always <laughs> asking people like, what are you eating? What are you drinking? That's I'm exactly like, right. Yeah, this is it's this like is- candy store. <laughs> I have found that between the Addy poem and the candy store poem, I just want to say that Chicago poets are doing something very right. You guys yes, are very much yes. tapping in. <laughs> I am. Um, you're like, ah, yes. 90s ephemera and yeah. food. <laughs> and food <laughs> and delicious. And like specifically candy store. Like that's a specific <laughs> kind of food. It's not broccoli. Like we're not talking about yeah. the joys of no, nature. We are talking food. about junk food. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, so I got a poem for you. And this is actually okay. a good one because it also is like a Chicago suburban poem. Okay. Um, okay. Ode to Cheese Fries by Jose Olivares. Okay. Uh, I haven't read any of their work, so I need to do that. Okay. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to send you that when we're done because you'll, okay. you'll, you'll, you'll okay. get in there. Yeah. I, okay. Is there a term for poems that are super referential? Because those are the poems that I really like. Like, I like being like, oh, I know what this person's talking about. I'm less interested in someone's interior life. But like, I think of like Hanif has that like great poem about like Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah. Like pushing, pushing off or something. With, yeah. 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 That liar. That, <laughs> yeah. 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 And like, a, though, look, like, I just love that shit. Shout out Hanif, except for that poem. I, okay. Oh, right. Because of I, course. Look, Chicago, I like the poem. Of course. Mike didn't push off. I've had, okay, this, it's fine. I've had this conversation with me. Mike didn't push off. Is all I'm saying. I don't have a horse in this race. Both you and Hanif have graciously joined this podcast. I have, I, as I've mentioned, I'm a Warriors fan, so I don't really care. But I just like reading a poem where I'm like, I know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So, is there a name for that? Kind of the the name. Mostly, like people would call like a poem that is like based off of a piece of art, ekphrastic. Or like ekphrastic, yeah. Uh, Wait, frastic so, with an F? No, no. Um, like E K P H R A S I S. Oh yes, yes, yes. I've been mispronouncing that. No, it's fine. You're good. You're good. But um, and so you know, I think of ekphrastic poetry as like 
also not just being strictly about visual art, but could also be something in conversation subconsciously with okay. with some sort of popular art or music or or maybe even like a sort of cultural moment or cultural artifact like, you know, Michael Jordan not pushing off and triumphing justly over the Utah sure, Jazz. Sure. Um, or, you know, or whatever, right? Right. Or a candy star, sure. <laughs> or a candy star. So, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's like, right. But I think the thing about ekphrastic stuff typically is like, it usually is about a specific thing, mm-hmm. right? So it might be like the thing about, like when we're talking about the one that, the series of poems, all the still lights, right? That are, that are right. kind of about or using the, um, the album cover as a jumping off place. Did you know all the album covers? I, there's a few I didn't know. Um, I let's let, let's go through them. Let's I'll, go let's, through. Okay, so the see. first one is "Still Life" with the dropout bear sitting in the stands. Yeah, easy. Got it. Got Still it. Life with Kendrick Lamar's Mama's Van. Okay. Yeah. In the title. Got it. Yeah. Still Life with Crooked Painting and Bullet Holes in Grayscale. I didn't have this one. Um, wait, let me look at the poem. I don't know it just off the title. I think that me... he says almost always who the person is towards the end. Oh, that's, um, I think the Slim Shady LP or Marshall Mathers. Oh, okay. It's one of those. Let me okay. look at it. Let me, I'm a Google. Okay. Continue. Uh, well, you. The next one is Still Life with Torso of Corn Road Neo Soul Singer. I think that's D'Angelo, right? Yeah. Okay. I, and, and I don't even, is that the album or is that just the? I, um, it must be the album, right? Yeah, but it could just be the video. That's interesting. Oh, sure. I don't know. I think I mean, yeah, D'Angelo Dene- loved to be topless. Yeah. So. Inez Smith has like this great poem that I think is like, where they, where they sort of talk about like, seeing the untitled video and like trying mm. to like look down the TV. Oh, <laughs> um, Denez is all of us. Yes. I mean, fair, fair, reasonable. Damn. I don't actually okay. don't. Yeah. I don't know if I know what this one is. I can't, I okay. Know. What about still life with woman and balloons in noir? I didn't know that one. Yeah. I don't know. Actually. I don't remember. I mean, I'm sure I know the album, but I just, I, you know, I have like a Courtney, very... if you're listening, which I doubt you are, but if you are, will you please tell Man. DM me all the answers? <laughs> okay. Yeah, Courtney better listen. I'm gonna text him after this and be like, yo, give me all the albums. Please. Okay, still please. life with color orange, we know is channel orange. Right. Um, still life with young black woman's face etched into a school desk. Is that miseducation? That's miseducation. I never realized that that's what that was an image of. <laughs> I've seen that really <laughs> Still life with light-skinned rapper wearing newsboy cap. Common, right? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. I must be common. Yeah, um, still life with black boy's face overlaying project buildings. Is that Nas? Is that Illmatic? Yeah, that's Illmatic. And then still life with skateboarding rapper orbited by nerd paraphernalia. I think he says that's uh, Lupe that's or, or oh wait, no no that's Lupe you're right that is Lupe I think he says it in it that it's yeah. Lupe there's that like is, a line yes because I would Lupe. not have known that yeah that's Lupe but it could also be a, it could also be like one of the NERD like like the description would actually I think also fit right 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 Neptune's albums but yeah that's that's Lupe that's the first Lupe record so we only don't know two for sure the balloons one and then the bullet hole one yeah 
Yeah. You'll get me answers. We'll we'll get to the bottom of this, people. I'm sure people are listening right now, screaming at their radio or their phone or whatever, They're being like, like, you idiots. I get so many, whenever I do this and I don't know the answer to something, then I get all these DMs. But then the best part is in like six months, someone is going to DM me and be like, hey, I listened to the episode and it's this album. After like six days of people just barraging me, I'm going to get like, I got this, I got something like last month for something from January 20. 2021 being like i didn't see it updated on your website it's like i'm gonna update it what am i gonna like, say i got the answer <laughs> y'all know i keep doing these things i'm not just yeah. like one. just like waiting <laughs> like i can't do another episode until someone tells me the answer but i appreciate it so please do tell me but i always laugh when someone does it like a year later like okay nah, i got no, it i got it i feel it. like look if you don't do it you have like a week you have like a, a week, week to clarify yeah. after that yeah. If you want to like, if you want to use this as like some sort of excuse to like talk to me, then like make a joke about it or like make some yeah. other comment because I obviously have this information already, or I don't need it. Yeah. Like it's, no. It's exactly. not messed up my life. It's so social media is such a crazy place because before I had this show, I only interacted with people I knew, and now I interact with so many strangers, which I love and like is like generally pretty fun. But sometimes I'm like, you guys don't know. You guys have no. You really think I haven't found this information? Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't immediately go and Google it as we're done. So everyone, you have a week from today. Today is April twenty seventh. You have a week. So if the next episode of the stacks is appearing on your stacks feed, do not message me. Yeah, but if good. it hasn't yet, then feel free to let me know. Right, <laughs> and also you can only like say anything in the DMs if you subscribe. Yes. Oh, right. yeah. If you're Don't not be like subscribed. cherry picking episodes, and yeah. then be and please like, follow also. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And no one has time for that. No one has time for you non-subscribers. Yeah, I need like, you. Rate, review, all that. Come on. I bet about a hundred people are just going to unsubscribe after this rant. They're going to be like, "She's an ungrateful bitch. She doesn't care yeah. about my hot takes." Well, whatever. Oh. Bye. I'll miss you. Yeah. Come back eventually. <laughs> okay. Wait. I have something else I wanted to ask you about. Yes. This is like sort of a heady poetry question. Okay, love it. They're probably not an answer, but one of the things about poetry that I have mentioned many times that I like is I like form. I'm very curious about form, which is why I like a guzzle or a gazelle or whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. I talk about iambic pentameter a lot. I love that. I love a poem that rhymes. I love a rhyming couplet. I even like it when it's every other, like a limerick style. I like that. I like when I can catch the rhythm and it goes. I also like when there's a rhythm and it changes. I like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And you do a thing that I need answers about, which is, okay. and, and Courtney does this a little bit, but you do it a lot. You make poems that visually look a certain way. So like whether it's like a triangle that becomes or like a diamond shape, like with sure. the words on the page or like I think Courtney does this too, where it's like everything is indented left, but then like a little paragraph will be like moved to the right. And that's form like visual form. And I want to know about line endings and also about the visual form of a poem. Like, how are you imagining that I'm supposed to be reading this? And how do you perform it? How can you perform a triangle? Does it change how you think about reading the poem out loud if you were going to perform it somewhere? That's a great question, dang. So the answer is, it depends, sorry. Um, <laughs> ah, <laughs> but, I knew this was coming. No, so. A thing I, I was thinking about this before when you were talking about your relationship to poems and like 
really loving some poems in the collection and then other ones being like, I don't really know what this means. Whatever, moving on. Um, A thing I tell my students is that the poem that you write on the page, like that's really kind of sheet music. And so the song itself, like the, the thing that really is actually the poem is what happens when that music gets interpreted, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when someone sits down to play it at the, on a piano or on a different instrument or sing it or whatever, and, each, and we understand that each of those things, though it might be quote unquote the same song, is a different experience, right? Constitutes a different mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's why I really like the thing you said about, you know, if I don't like it, maybe I'll come back to it in five years and it'll mean something different to me and I'll really like it. Um, you know, I, I love that sort of open, the open invitation of that because like, you know, if I'm like sitting down to play, I don't, Stevie Wonder's Love's In Need of Love on a piano and I can't play it, that doesn't mean the song is whack. It means I right. I, I just happen to have not yeah. played piano since like I was nine. And so I'm not- Right, 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 right. Um, but, and I think that poetry works a lot of the same ways. So setting that aside, the th- for me, the physical thing of the page is, is um, it's just like, it's another way that you can give people information, right? It's another way that you can um, offer something to folks, right? So sometimes I might write a poem that has a kind of like physical, that does a physical thing on the page. And that is meant to mimic something that's happening in the poem right so there's a there's a poem in uh in finna called like only boy that where where um stanzas are inverted right so stanzas are literally like flipped upside down i was just looking at that one yeah and one of the reasons (laughs) the reason why that is is because that poem is sort of like one of the kind of major images or kind of things in the poem is like people playing double dutch right Mm. which is like a big thing where I grew up like on my block and I, and I had all sisters. Right. And so double Dutch was like a whole thing. And so it, what it requires is that when you read it, you kind of have to turn the book and the way you have to turn a rope. Right. right. So it, it mimics the thing. Um, so that can sometimes be the, be what I'm trying to do. Sometimes like having a line, a certain length or having lines of varying lengths or the same length can speed people's reading experience up or slow it down, mm. or it can make something into a joke. Right, or, but you or are create. signaling something to your reader. I like can. you're telling me something about this poem is different than something about the previous poem. Like yeah. how you want me to read it and engage with it. Yeah, like and that. I need I, to make a different choice. Well, not not even that you have to make a different choice. I'm just pointing out to you, it's like a different experience. Right, okay. each poem is like a slightly. They're they're all a part of a single experience, but like Mm -hmm. that single experience has many different components in the same way that like, if you're in a relationship, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you have moments that are very passionate and very whatever. Sometimes you have moments that are like objectively bad. Right. And bad. (laughs) And a lot of stuff is sort of in between, but like, if you think of your, your relationship or your friendship or whatever, you have like, an overall feeling about it, but you can then also parse these individual moments. And like, that's for me, like what a, what a poem is. It's, it's like the distillation of just a moment. 
Sure. So for me, as again, a person who loves form and rules and yeah. regulations, and like that's yeah. just part of my personality. Again, I love Shakespeare because I like the iambic pentameter. I get mad when I see a Shakespeare play and they don't use the iambic pentameter and they just read the lines through like there's an end of the line for a reason. And so when I read poems, I feel very strongly that like the end of the line of the text is a choice by the poet and that should be respected. Mm. And so when I read poems, oftentimes I take a quick breath at the end of the poem, even if it's just really quick, like same Mm -hmm. thing with Shakespeare. Like a lot of people know, you know, Shakespeare texts that are multiple lines, but like a good actor will, will clip it at that 10th, that 10th syllable. But sometimes when I hear poets read their own poems, they don't fucking do that. So then I'm like, well, why did you make the line end there? Why would you make that choice? If you don't have to, you're not forced because you could do the thing where it goes to the next line, which you've done in other poems. And so I just feel like I am so rigid. I'm such a rigid person that like this is one of the reasons that poetry is really hard for me because I'm like trying to read into like, okay, like. I'm looking at your poem step and it's like three lines on this side. And then the the next three lines are indented a different way. And I'm like, how do I read this? Like, like, how do I make a choice? And I don't know. So I just, I'm wondering if like you're thinking about when you're writing it, if you're writing it because it feels a way to write mm. it, or if you're thinking about me or someone else reading it and how it feels yeah. to read it or not, or both or neither. Yeah. Well, I also say when I write Or if I'm poems, just being so neurotic. No, nah, you're good. You're good. I dig it. When I write poems, I just make the line breaks wherever. It's just vibes. I'm just like, okay. oh, it looks okay. this looks like a poem to me. Okay. <laughs> like if I'm handwriting or if I'm like typing it, I'm just like this, this feels like a line breaking time. I really want this also for Robert Frost and like yeah. who all those other people. Like I just really want to go to his journals and be like I put my line breaks where the vibes are. Thank yeah. you. You know, the vibes. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm a professor, so they should have, you know, you can I take know. that to the I love, um, I love this for all of us. But all my second drafts, like, for the most part, are mm. look like a single block of text. Okay. Because after I, like, experience the vibes, then I'm kind of like, okay, now I actually have to make decisions. <laughs> okay. like, like an adult. Um <laughs> And at that point, then I start to think about, oh, are there, is there some kind of organizing principle that I can use? Is there something here that I can, that I can think through? So like, for example, one of the earliest poems I ever published, which is not a very good poem, is about Rahm Emanuel, uh, who is the old mayor of Chicago, who sucked. But He's um, famous for being Obama's chief of staff as well. Yeah, yeah, that. He also cussed a lot, right? And that was kind of the thing. So I wrote this poem. Mm when he was, I think, being elected. Okay. Um, like he was run, he, when he announced he, he was going to run or whatever. And um, the thing about the poem is every, because he had this sort of reputation for being really profane in the Clinton and Obama White House, I think in that poem, like it's like built around fours, right? Because because mm-hmm. of, you know, like a four letter word. Right? Four letter word. One, Rom's a four letter word, which is funny to me. Two, okay. uh, yeah, and so then like all the most of the sta- all the stanzas were four lines long. Most of the the lines were four words long, this kind of stuff. Mm. But like I didn't come up with that. At first I was just writing this sort of silly I poem see. about this politician. And then I'm like, oh, wait a second. There's this thing that I can do to like give it a little more depth. But okay. the reason why, like, aside from just being like people are bad readers or they're not, they don't pay attention to their own stuff, 
one of the reasons why I think like you may hear a poet read and that feels like a really different experience than it, what it is on the page is it is a different experience. Sure. And, you know, in the same way that like I think about poems is like being sheet music, right? And so that means that that the the sheet music is one component of it and the actual player, like who whoever's engaging with the thing or bringing it to life, whether that's happening in your own head or in a reading out loud or some other kind of presentational thing. Those are the things that make up the poem, that make up your experience of the poem. And so I don't think reading my book is a different experience than like seeing me read from my book. And it should be. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it is, it's fundamentally different. That's right. Okay. But you know poets who like read their work and like it's not what they've written. Like it's like what's the words are the same, but it's like, are you going to take a breath? Like, yeah, that's supposed to rhyme. Like what's happened? Like, so I don't know. I think some of it is also I have a performance background. And so I think about performance in a very like intense. I mean, I think about a lot of things in an intense way. You heard my podcast. A fidelity to the performance. Well, and I'm, I like a script. I like a text. I like, like with sheet music, I like when someone does what is written. And then when you break from it, it feels special. I feel like when someone is just riffing from jump, I'm like, okay, well, can we get back to the root of the thing? Because your riff, if you're riffing on the first line, it's like, okay, well, where are we going? And why are we here? Yeah, yeah. Like, is this the song? Contract has been broken. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) right. And so when I like, sometimes we'll hear people like read a poem, and I'm like, you're reading this poem the same way you read the other poem, and they're written totally different in your book. So what you're telling me is that you don't think that your writing is important, or you don't think that your performance Mm. is important. Like you're not, you're not showing the respect to the work that you've done. I don't know. But again, I have such an intense relationship to the text because of the years that I spent studying Shakespeare and like studying and like, you know, there's a whole art form to doing iambic pentameter that involves staying faithful to like, for example, I think I use this all the time. The the first line of Richard the third is now is the winter of our discontent. And iambically it should be now is the winter, but everyone performs it. Now is the winter of our discontent. And that is a choice that Shakespeare made to break the form from the beginning because he knew that people would know that it was supposed to be iambic. So when you do now is the winter, like you're really drawing people in and people who like, if you don't understand iambic pentameter, you're not going to get that. But people who get it, it's like a major moment. Same as like to be or not to be. That is a famous line, but it also breaks the iambic pentameter. And so I feel like when poets don't trust their work, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? You wrote this book and now you're just reading it like you're reading the newspaper. Like, and yeah. there's 7,000 lines and each line only has four syllables. And why are you reading it like, hello, I went to the store today. Like, no, motherfucker, it's supposed to be like, hello, I went. To the store I, today. Like, <laughs> see, I love, I love that you're like so, that you have like such strong feelings about this. I do. This is, I have such strong great. feelings about the form because when I because when I pick up the book, I'm so insecure about my reading of poetry mm-hmm. that I am relying on that way of writing to inform how I should be reading it. I'm like looking to the author to guide me Damn. and like. And so when I feel like, and then when I see them do it and I'm like, that's not at all what I thought we were getting at here. I feel like, oh no, I got the math problem wrong. Sure. 
Anyways, this is, I feel like maybe I need to go to ther- poet therapy for this. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's good. <laughs> okay, we're like so out of time. Just the last thing really quickly. We sort of talked about the title, but we always talk about the title and the cover. And I just love to know your quick thoughts about those two things. And then we can skedaddle. Yeah. I mean, I love this title. I think it's one. I just, I, I think it's funny. And I also think it does like, it does the work of the book, which is like really think through how a speaker or many speakers potentially like reconcile kind of who they are and the sort of path that they are finding for themselves and mm-hmm. the, and the past that, that they feel are sort of prescribed by them by society. Right. And those pasts can be like contradictory and, and whatever. Right. And so I think there's something about the pun that does. And, and Courtney's first book has a kind of punny title. I wonder if like, this is just going to be his thing. Like his thing. Yeah. yeah Cause the first one was like telepathologies. Okay. <laughs> and, and so I'm like, okay, fam, are you just going to like, you just go just, we just just words none of us can spell also good luck right he's just he's just like (laughs) stunning on us trolling me winning spelling bees um so i really love the title um i really like the image the the one the one thing and this is like not at all like obviously like not not at all like this or whatever like i have a great affection for the book and the poet and the poems but um i wish it was like more contrasting same Yes, because I always think about like how I literally could not see it. Yes. When I went to order the book, I was like, what the fuck is on this book? Like I could not figure out. It wasn't until it actually got into my home and I looked at it for a while that I was like, oh, it's a person with their hands and then Mm -hmm. their mouth is open and like they kind of fade into the background, but you really can't see them. Like it's so hard to see. And it is like a very cool image and maybe they're flipping us off. Like it's hard to know for sure the details of all of the art. And it's a bummer because I feel like it should pop more. Yeah, I'm very particular about like, matte books versus gloss Glossy. all this kind of stuff yeah and i i feel like this is a cover that would translate better if it were matte it's matte yeah is your first right. book i read your first book on my kindle is your first book matte also so the first couple printings of it were i think now they might all be glossy but oh. they sort of went back and forth but i i, I think that image I, I like my. I think I like that image. I love your book covers. I think that I. I. I was going to say that I think that I was imagining it as a glossy cover, but oh. now that you said that, I'm like, oh, I bet it would be even cooler in matte. That's why I was wondering. Yeah. It, but I also like the colors of that cover are so good. Like yeah. it's just like, oh, and it has the contrast that you need. Like the yeah. like it's a blue background, right? Yeah. I'm like no, out, trying to remember. Honestly, like shout out my older sister. Uh, who who does hair because like she was sort of the one that I had like a couple images that I was thinking about and um, the way that we picked that image I, I was I was like asking people who I knew but like the thing that mm. clinched it for me is she was I think in a, sh- in a shop working and I was like yo what here's like these five photos or these five pictures like which one do you like and ask everyone in the shop like wh- like which mm. one so the and like it was, it, that was like pretty the clear consensus. And I was like, bet, cool. Yeah, and actually, one great. of the ones I I didn't use ended up being Hanif's uh, like first book cover. So. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> just I, recycling um, cover images. Well, no, I, I posted like after the book came out. Maybe you know at some point 
months after the book came out, I was like, oh yeah, like shout out Max Sansing, who's like a great artist mm. who did my book cover. And here's a couple other ones that I thought about that almost were I the see. cover. And then Hanif was like, yo, what's the, what's that one talking about? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I can put y'all in touch. Like, that, that's, that's not a problem. But, yeah. I love that. Wait, you're in the spades game in Hanif's latest book, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where he's like, Nate is almost certainly better than me. Yeah. The most yeah. important uh, moment in American literature. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's right. I, I just now dawning on me. I know Denez is in it, but I couldn't remember who the other poets were. Okay. Yeah. We have yeah. to go. We have to okay. go. We'll All do right. this Sorry. on another episode. We'll talk about Sorry. the Spades game. Um, yes. Nate. Oh, thank you so much. This was so <laughs> fun. I, I didn't ever think talking about poetry would be so fun. My blood pressure is up from the whole form conversation, but I think we'll get it back together. Um, <laughs> I had to go take a nap or something, go do yoga. Um, everyone, you can get Nate's books wherever you get them. Finna, Wild Hundreds. He's also the editor on the Breakbeat Poets Anthology. He's got plays. Yeah. He's could, you could go to Colorado and you could be a student. There's many ways. You could also just find him on social media. That's but true. if you are going to message him, you have one week to do it. Otherwise, you're cut off. I mean, uh, <laughs> just message me about like other things. Ask oh, me yeah, about other the Chicago White Sox. That message me about okay. the White Sox. Yes, sure. Don't do that. But um, baseball, (laughs) baseball will have started by the time this airs. So go Giants. Um, Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us this week. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Nate Marshall for being our guest. And now it is a moment you've been waiting for, the announcement of our May book club pick. I am so excited. We are going to be reading a brand new book. It's called Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. It's by Danielle Smith. And I cannot wait for you all to find out who our guest is going to be for this conversation. Be sure to tune in next week to find out. If you love The Stacks and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join The Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks or if you listen to your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas, came with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.